And so I sat there eating my like petrolly Snickers bar. And man, that is really depressing. That gets you down. Hello and welcome back to Indie Bites, the podcast where I bring you stories of fellow indie hackers in 15 minutes or less. Today I'm joined by Grey Baker, who is the co-founder of Dependabot, a bot which makes it easy for developers to keep their third-party dependencies up to date, which grew to 14k MRR before being acquired by GitHub in 2019. Grey's story is a long and interesting one, so there is an extended version of this podcast available on the Indie Feast membership. But the best bits are here in this episode. So Grace started out at McKinsey, a big consulting firm, before becoming a pivotal early employee at London fintech Ocardless. He then cycled around the world and then came back to accidentally launch Dependabot. So I actually met Grey four years ago at the Indie Beers meetup in London, which is funnily enough also where I met the founder of today's episode sponsor, Tiny Host, made by my buddy Elston. TinyHost makes it super easy for you to host static sites and files. Just zip those files up and TinyHost will create a perfect hosted link for you, ready to share a link to your side project. Or if you're freelancing and need to share quick prototypes with your clients, this is a wonderfully simple way to do it. Honestly, this is just a really fun tool to try out and it's cool to see another indie hacker making a product used by thousands of people. Also, I found out this week that Elson owns tiny.com. Can we please convince him to switch to that instead of using his current domain? But anyway, head to that current domain at tiny.host. That's with two eyes, or hit the link in the show notes. Let's get into this episode. Gray, welcome to Indie Bites. Hey James, great to be here. Now, usually I tend to avoid going into people's backstory, but I think yours is super relevant. So you went to University of Cambridge, did a maths degree, and then after a few years, you went and did a master's in economics. Talk me through how that shaped the first few years of your career. At the time, I thought I had this big life plan where I wanted to end up in international development, wanted to make like a positive difference, help people. And I thought the way to do it was, you know, to end up somewhere like the World Bank or the UN. And I needed a master's in a relevant discipline. So having gone from like that maths degree where it was like the point of doing the maths degree is it didn't lead anywhere. I was like, now I need the degree that leads somewhere. So I did two years of economics and I really enjoyed it. And I got like close to the end and I applied for one of those kind of save the world jobs. I also applied for a really not save the world job, which was McKinsey, which is just a big corporate strategy consultancy gig. But I got the McKinsey thing and I just thought, you know what, this place looks really good. The training's going to be amazing. I was kind of like beguiled by this opportunity to work with smart people and CEOs and all that kind of stuff. So I took that and put all of my like you know save the world ambitions on hold for a couple of years well working at mckinsey certainly isn't a usual path into indie hacking and it was never your plan to really stay there forever so you left after two years what did you do after that i was leaving mckinsey and i was like i'm gonna you know learn how to start a thing and i thought i was gonna start something where i did rental furniture People that were moving into flats but wanted to like, you know, be able to rent their furniture as well. It's a terrible idea. Turns out like it has like massive like capital investment problems and I didn't have any capital. So I, I canned that one and realized that the way that you do a startup if you are poor is you learn how to code because writing code is kind of like it just costs you your time. And I had loads of time but no money. So I sat in a library teaching myself how to code for six months. And I sat there with this pile of books on like how to program in Python and JavaScript. And then I had a book on CSS and had a book on regular expressions and had a book on Git and I read all of them. And I kind of got good enough to be dangerous and then got to the point where I was like, okay, well now I need an actual idea to build. I got the skills to build, but I don't actually have an idea. 
<laughs> I actually thought, Gray, that you were someone that had coded since they were young, didn't manage to do it in six months in a library. That is pretty awesome. So now we're getting into something indie hackers might be more familiar with. You know how to code and you're about to join your first startup. This was GoCardless. Two of the co-founders, Matt and Hiroki, have been with you at McKinsey, I believe. How did you end up going and working with them? So they had done Y Combinator and then they came back and they had raised their seed round and I got in touch with them or they got in touch with me. And the plan was I would do a three month internship there and I'd get to see what a startup looks like about a year in. And then I just stayed and I was there for four and a half years in the end. Wow, four and a half years. And in that time, you went through quite a big growth period, growing to 100 people, and you did a ton of things while you were there. Talk me through some of that growth period, Gray. So we were six people and had just kind of started offering this service at businesses. There were like a few hundred of them using it, and it was taking off. People that used it loved it, but most people had never heard of it. We didn't like have some great plan, but then in terms of growth... You're just riding this wave. You're constantly trying to make the customers that you have advocates and then make the customers that they bring in advocates as well. And that's how you get this compounding growth. We never had a, a big secret about how we were going to get folks in. We were never brilliant at the distribution side. We retrofitted marketing and sales to the company later. I love that approach to just making your current customers happy. And we will touch on this a little later in the episode when we talk about Dependabot. But let's move this on a little bit. Go Cardless, you've done your almost five year stint there, big part of your life. What made you want to leave and not just stick with it? Because it seemed pretty exciting at the time. When you're a really early employee, you've always got this slight chip on your shoulder, which is, when am I going to do my one? You have a bunch less equity. You have a much, much lower profile. And even within the company, there are certain jobs that aren't going to be your job. I ended up being kind of like deputy CEO at GoCardless, but I was never going to be CEO because I didn't start it. It wasn't my company. And so at some point I was like, okay, I got to do my own one here. I need to test my metal. Okay, I think that's true of a lot of indie founders, actually. And so you didn't test your metal straight away. Well, not exactly in the way people might think. You decided to embark on a cycling trip around the world. How did that come about? So I had a notice period and everybody was asking, oh, what are you going to do, Gray? What are you going to do? And I needed to come up with something. So I was like, oh, I'm going to take a break and I will go on a cycle trip. And they were like, oh, where are you going to go? And I was like, well, I'll, you know, I'll cycle to Australia. And then that kind of like gathered momentum. And so I kind of, Back myself into this corner where I had to cycle around the world and I did this seven month ride going from here to Singapore and then across Australia, across the US and then back to London. It was a lot of fun. That is so cool. Cycling around the world seems one of those life defining experiences, right? Without deviating too much from the indie hacker story, give me just one little anecdote that can give people a little taste of what that cycle around the world was like. One of the times that was toughest actually was getting into Uzbekistan and realizing that I had no money, food for half a day, and that the nearest town with a bank was 240 miles away. And so I was like, okay, I'm gonna have to like ration what little food I've got. And what little food I've got was almost entirely limited to three Snickers bars. So I was like, I'll cycle 100 miles and then I will have a Snickers bar. Get my 100 miles, Snickers bar time. Open my pannier, 
Turns out Snickers bars are stored in the same pannier as I had stored a lighter, which was full of fluid, or had been full of fluid, until it got knocked by something, and the lighter fluid had all come out. And these panniers are they're like really waterproof, which means all the lighter fluid had just sat at the bottom of this pannier, along with my Snickers bars. What happens if you put lighter fluid round Snickers bars is that it will dissolve all of the paint on the, the wrapper of the bar and it will also dissolve the glue at the ends of the wrapper that seal it so it will get into the chocolate and then it will dissolve the chocolate layer of the Snickers bar but it will leave the nutty middle completely intact and I was like but I've, this is literally all the food I've got for the next like two days so I'm gonna have to eat it and so I sat there with my spork eating my like petrally Snickers bar and thinking, I wonder if I'll get ill. But if I don't eat it, then I'll probably be in more trouble from starvation. So yeah, swings and roundabouts. So great. Seven months later, you come back from this life-changing cycle around the world. Did you come back raring to go, ready to start your new venture? I felt full of energy. Like you get back and you have this like massive sense of relief and you get to sleep in a bed again and have running water and the ability to like heat food. And those things were amazing. And I was full of energy thinking, okay, the next thing is, is a startup. And I took my break and I came back and I wanted to do something in healthcare. And I tried really hard to build something to make it easier for you to see your GP. I dedicated about six months to that. And Early on in that period, in order to stop myself going insane, along with Harry, who's my co-founder, we built this little thing called Dependabot, which became now my full-time gig as a side project to stop us going insane. Dependabot was kind of born out of this problem that we had at GoCardless, which was keeping our dependencies up to date. It's a really boring problem. It's quite a small problem. But as a result, it's the perfect thing to build a side project on. I like it. The scratching your own itch kind of problem. So tell me about how you launched this thing, got it off the ground, got those first customers. But yeah, so we had this thing and we were like, okay, well, we built this great thing. Everyone's going to want it. They're like me. They'll just see the value. We'll just do like a marketing launch. We'll write a great blog post and we'll put it all over Hacker News and job done. Then we can get back on building our healthcare stuff. And so I spent two days analyzing all of the vulnerabilities that had happened in open source dependencies over the last 10 years and putting together beautiful graph, perfect for the Hacker News crowd, writing up our like clickbaity blog post. And it came to launch day and we put it live and it absolutely tanked. And we had one sign up by the end of the day. And man, that is really depressing. That gets you down. But because we were using it ourselves, we didn't give up because... We knew it was valuable. It didn't seem like a lack of validation of the idea. You know, it felt like we were just crap at marketing. So what I then started doing is spamming people on GitHub who had done something that the robot could have done for them. And I would go on and find their pull requests and write a comment saying, hey, I wrote this robot and it could do this for you and it's great and you should use it. Please use it. It's free. And that worked quite well. I couldn't find that many of those people each day. But the ones that I could find, like 50% of them signed up. I mean, it's the do things that don't scale mantra. In those really early days, 
doing that like concierge sales, even if you are literally giving away your thing for free is so valuable. Because even the people that didn't sign up told me why. And they told me why normally, relatively politely, they said, oh, I'd love to use this, but I'm worried about these things. And that's what I use to make the product better. I did that for about two months. The big change for Dependable was we got into this thing called the GitHub Marketplace. And they would take the payment on our behalf and, and pay it out to us. And they'd also kind of advertise us within their platform. Overnight, our distribution problem wasn't solved, but was dramatically improved. Because then we were getting 20 signups a day. From there, it is a slow grind. Like my philosophy has always been to put pleasing existing customers first. Make sure that we're retaining those customers, make sure we're turning those customers into advocates. And then with any extra time I have, that's when I think about, okay, how can we distribute to others? How can we make people that have never heard of this aware of it? We're really word of mouth driven. And that works in developer tools. Word of mouth is pretty powerful and developers are very skeptical. So I haven't found other channels that have great returns. But yeah, it's, you know, we've been in that marketplace for 18, 19 months. And every month, you know, we've tried to grow by, you know, 20% or something like that. And it's hard work. But generally, it's come from pleasing the existing folks rather than targeting new ones. Okay, great. You've been a fantastic guest. Let's round off on one final question. What advice would you give for aspiring bootstrappers who want to make a success of their product? Most growth comes from hard work. Sometimes you hit on something that will drive your growth for however many months without loads of hard work. Don't compare yourself to other startups. When you hear somebody else got a thousand signups on Product Hunt, when you see some venture-backed company that's growing by 50% month on month, when somebody else posts on Indie Hackers and their growth numbers are much, much better than yours, your business is different. Your business can still be a success. You need to persevere with it. Comparing yourselves to others is not the way that you win. You win by focusing on your own thing and by keeping going. Don't give up. Start with sales, not marketing. This stuff takes ages and ages. The companies that from the outside look like they're winning on the inside feel like they're losing. That's how you will feel every day. It is really tough. And it's only when you look back after 24 months that you'll realize you've built something bigger than you thought you possibly could on day one. Great. Love that advice. Thank you for joining me. Thanks, James. Okay, so I've got a little secret to tell you. I actually recorded this episode three years ago with Gray on my first podcast, Marketing Mashup, but only 20 people heard it. But this podcast isn't really about marketing. It's much more about Gray's journey and his story, which I think is super interesting and relevant to indie hackers. And it's really surprising how some of the advice from three years ago can still be applied to today. But because this was from an old podcast, I didn't do the recommendations section. So I emailed Gray and asked him for his favorite book, favorite podcast and favorite indie hacker. So his favorite book is The Design of Everyday Things. He said he doesn't listen to any music or podcasts, so no favorite podcasts. Then indie hacker or entrepreneur Pete Hamilton, who's a CTO and co-founder at Incident.io, is one of his favorites. And one other thing about this story is Gray actually sold Dependabot to GitHub, and now he's working at GitHub. And here's what he had to say about it. 
Life at GitHub has been great. I'm responsible for all security products here and get to ship work to millions of developers. Sometimes I miss the freedom and hustle of indie hacking, but by applying the same within GitHub, I've been able to achieve things here I'm really proud of too. This is one of my favorite episodes so far. I had a blast editing the 90 minute conversation into this perfect 15 minute episode. If you want to listen to more great story, it is available on the Indie Feast membership. Link is in the show notes. Remember to check out today's sponsor, tiny.host for all your simple web project hosting needs. See you next week.